wise friends and colleagues. Welcome to the Thoughtful Teacher Podcast, the professional educator's thought partner, a service of OnCourse Education Solutions. I am Scott Lee. As we begin the fall semester of the 2023 season, I will share the first of two episodes featuring my conversation with Mark Anthony Gooden. Dr. Gooden is the Christian Johnson Endeavor Professor of Education Leadership at Teachers College, Columbia University, where he researches school-level leadership, anti-racist leadership, culturally responsive school leadership, and legal issues in education. He has published studies and papers in a wide variety of journals, including Teachers College Record, the Peabody Journal of Education and Urban Education, among others. He recently published the book, Five Practices for Equity-Focused School Leadership, along with co-authors Sharon Rad, Gretchen Givens Generet, and George Theo Harris. Much of our conversation will focus on the book, but we start discussing Mark's early teaching career. Welcome, Mark Anthony Gooden, to the Thoughtful Teacher Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for the uh, welcome, Scott. So before we start discussing how to drive equity-focused change in schools, could you share with us a little bit about your current role and how you became involved in working with K-12 schools? Absolutely. So uh, currently, I am a professor at uh, uh, Teachers College, Columbia University. I am the author of Five Practices for Equity-Focused School Leadership, and uh, and also do some, some work around uh, giving keynotes to leaders uh, across the country. I got involved in this work uh, originally as a K-12 teacher. I started out as a secondary mathematics teacher uh, in Columbus, Ohio, uh, some years ago, I'll say it that way, and and uh, I had questions then just about how how equity impacted the work I was doing. I did not have the language then. So uh, so in that, I, I've learned over the years uh, as a as a student and as a as a leader in these spaces. And and I work with just a, a range of leaders in different areas. Uh, for instance, I've keynoted at places like um, uh, Eanes Independent School District. I've, I've talked to uh, folks as diverse as like the uh, people in the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol uh, Protection Agency, which was a different group to talk to. Uh, but I've also keynoted at the uh, British Educational Leadership Management and Administration Society um, in, in the U.K., uh, which was interesting, uh, just to name a few. And, and so usually my keynotes really are on the information I've learned over the years through research and experience, uh, centering um, most often on topics like anti-racist leadership, uh, I have this thing called Jedi, I say, which is our justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And then last but not least, uh, cultural responsive approaches, which which really help leaders understand how do I grapple with things like unconscious bias as I try to work on doing my job in, in the most uh, impactful and effective way possible. Yeah. And you mentioned starting out and not even knowing the the language of the problem. And I think that's a common thing. I had a similar issue, similar issues uh, when I started teaching some years ago as well. How would you describe uh, the problem or problems with equity in schools uh, today? 
beyond just knowing uh, or not necessarily knowing the 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 language of the issue. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for that. So, so first, I, I always say it, it's important to start with the language of, of the term equity, for instance. And I say to people, I can give you a long former definition, but a more straightforward one where it's like equity is really ensuring that each child gets what they need to reach their potential. And, and, I, and I say, if I'm going to go a little bit further, and I'm glad we have a little time to do that today. Um, I, I said another way saying educational equity happens when each student learns and flourishes in a welcoming, caring and inclusive environment. Um, it requires something of us, obviously. We want to be committed to a fair and just treatment of each student and a willingness to address structural barriers to their success uh, and the del delivery of resources aimed at providing equity outcomes. And I say aimed at providing equity outcomes. We want to aim for that. We want to aspire to that. Uh, we want to always get there. And in many, many cases, we won't. But we certainly want to be in a space where we're aspiring uh, to support students in, in that way. Is the, that's what I'll be thinking about when when I'm saying equity and talking about inequities. Uh, I want I want the listeners to get a feel for what, what I'm thinking when I when I speak that way. Many educators know there are issues with equity, and again, it comes down to the language and and discussing it. And sometimes we in schools or as educators, and also the there's a cultural problem in general with American culture. We tend to not prioritize equity, even if we do talk about it. Why do you think that is, and and what what could what could or should be done about it? Yes, yes, yes. So 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 again, wonderful questions. So um, there's a quote that I, I've modified a little bit, and and I'm gonna you know take some creative liberties there today and do that, and people will probably recognize it, but I'm gonna say it this way. We see and understand inequities not as they are, but as we are and how we've been taught. So when we come to a conversation about inequities, we're often looking through a lens of privilege. I mean, we're looking through our own lives. If we haven't really lived through inequity, we tend to think everybody's lives is kind of like mine. So what that means is we tend to miss the conversations around equity and we're not doing anything wrong. We're just entering them from who we are. And so that's why I say we see inequities from this standpoint and understand them from, you know, not as they truly are, but for, but how we are. OK. And, and so another way to think about that is the real definition around inequities and how they are really interwoven in the history of this country. So that means we have to start with, uh, and I'm going to sound a little intellectual, so I apologize for that, but I think it's, it's necessary. That means we have to start with this idea that there are historical, structural, and institutional ways in which society has been built. And those tend to elude us because we've been taught that to focus solely, that we should focus solely on hard work of the in individual. And another idea that we have, we've understood that there's this conflict uh, and, and there is a tension, I'll admit, but we we tend to think there's this conflict between embracing the meritocracy and then fighting for inequity. And I want to be clear, we want people to understand that in this country, we've always embraced these ideas about working hard and doing well. But while that happens on an equal basis in the minds of some people, there are inequities built into that that we don't talk about. So while it's important to think about these different pieces of working hard, it's not wrong. It's just incomplete because it doesn't deal with issues like unequal access to educational goods and services, which oftentimes in our country are organized by people's zip code, 
their property rights. You know, most of us agree that there's a strong correlation between where you live and the quality of educational resources that you get. So we want people to be curious about that. Why is that? And why has that particular way of being sustained, been sustained for so very long? And we've raised questions about it. We've raised questions about it. And uh, as I'm not mistaken, every state, every state has some funding question where we say the state presented right of, to an education is in some cases not thorough and efficient or equal in from district to district. It's just a, that we, we've not been able to get rid of that. We've not been able to get rid of those inequities because once again, they're baked into our historical, structural and institutional ways of being. And so many educators know that, that, that there are those equity problems in schools, but they just don't know how to really grapple with those. As you said, Scott, they, we know that they're there, but we just don't know how to really get into them. So if I could deal with the second part of your question, uh, and I think it was, why don't we why don't we prioritize this? Why do we tend not to? The short answer answer is that so, these are sophisticated systems of inequity, and they're rarely disturbed by us just having conversations alone. Like a lot of many folks have have start have started to have conversations. They require us to to really move into a space where we need to know how to do it. And many leaders continue to say, "I'm I'm about in uh, you know fighting for." equity and, and 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 I get to the point where I want to do something about it but I keep asking myself what step should I take what's the right order what should I be doing and I believe that five practices for equity focused school leadership is a great way a great place to start on what those steps are so that that's the, the other part of that the how to how do how do we do it even if we believe it or we want to carefully step into it we need a, a concrete way and approach to doing it and I think that's what the book does Okay. Well, and I want to talk about the book uh, in uh, just a minute, uh, specifically about uh, those five uh, equity leadership practices uh, shortly. Uh, but before we do that, you know, one thing that that I hear or have heard a lot over the years is this concept of colorblindness. You know, I don't have to worry about um, you know these uh, issues of inequality uh, because it doesn't affect me. I I'm colorblind. I don't care about the racial background of any of my students. Why is that a problem, or why is that, or do you see that as sidestepping the issue? I do, and I, I need educators to really work on hearing me because I, I feel like folks are coming from a good place. And I'm sure you have. I've even heard people quote Dr. King, you know, that famous quote about we should be judged by the content of our character, not by the color of our skin. And I, I want I want folks to read Dr. King, Dr. King a little bit closer. If as the professor, I can give folks a homework assignment. I want I want you to read that whole speech uh, a little bit closer. And I think what we will understand is he wasn't saying that we should just ignore color and and the experiences of people who have those experiences defined by the color of their skin. Maybe not by you as an individual. Maybe individually you're doing your best to interact and engage with people. But the problem is we probably are failing at that because there's a lot of unconscious bias in the work that we do. So striving for colorblind while it's a noble goal and it's a it's a great gesture and it's something that we want to strive for, doing so tends to miss the miss people's experiences 
that are impacted by inequities every day. So take, for instance, if you're saying to me, I'm going to look at you, Mark, as a human being and not as a black man. And I'm going to say, you listen, coming from a good place, I appreciate that. But you may not recognize or realize that because of racial inequities, there are certain things that are going to happen for me that you're going to miss individually and that you're definitely going to miss on a structural and historical level. So, so for instance, you may say, oh, we have the same opportunity to compete for, uh, let's just say, the same position. And then you may say, well, why do they always have that little statement in there about we're going to be an equal access opportunity? Well, we have that because historically research tells us that even though we're competing and we may have similar qualifications, uh, we may both have PhDs, somewhere in the system, somewhere in ways in which things have been structured and have not been removed, they're going to be inequities, racial inequities in particular. And those can tend to disadvantage me. And by you saying that, that I'm going to be colorblind means that if you're going to be an ally to me, you're not really seeing that experience. And if I were talking about it in the classroom for students, it would be the same way. People could say we're colorblind at our school. But if I would go in and see that there are disparities around who gets access to particular parts of the curriculum. And I would say, could you explain to me, for instance, if you have 30 percent African-American and Latinx students, but when I look at your calculus class, I only see one student who's African-American and one student who identifies as uh, Latinx. Is something happening here? Is something going on? Should we be asking questions about that? We absolutely should be asking questions about, about that kind of thing because it's our kind of unconscious bias and our aim to be colorblind that is a good and noble gesture, but the actual impact ends up turning out something different than what we were aiming for. So, uh, so hopefully that all makes sense, and that's kind of the succinct answer, as as succinct as I as I can get it. Actually, <laughs> no, that that that's great, and I you know, I think that one of the uh, problems sometimes is that we don't go deep enough into into that discussion and you know what are the good examples uh, you know cuz i'm sure you could go on and on and on looking at office referrals and suspension rates you know, which continue to show that generally in this country uh, students of color are disciplined at higher rates and more severely compared to white students so right Right. No, so don't worry about going too long with that. That's that's part of what we're doing here. Is so let's talk a little bit about your book. In your book, uh, you and your co-authors uh, describe uh, five equity leadership practices. First off, what are those, and is it a problem, or would it be a problem uh, if a school leader did not want to implement all five? Yes, yes, great question. So let, let me start by just giving a it's kind of a brief overview of these five practices. So first off, we've been really talking about this indirectly. We need leaders to prioritize equity. They need to have a vision around this. They need to understand what it means. Uh, later, we may get into this, but they need to understand what those those levels, and I'm doing a little trying, I know your listeners can't see me, but <laughs> that there are levels of inequity. And, and in, the, in the first part of the book, we talk about this idea of coming up with an equity vision, which really asks leaders to go into 
uh, some understanding about the history of how these inequities have come about in this country and then think about a vision. So that first one, again, is prioritize equity. Make, making it first is, is certainly something that's important, especially if you're going to integrate it throughout your systems. And then the second one is, is a big step, and we spend a lot of time uh, in the book on this one. We want leaders to prepare themselves intellectually and emotionally to reflect and act and, and repeat for equity every single day. Uh, so I'll say that again, reflect, act, and repeat, uh, all in service of equity every day. So, so the intellectual work is the kind of thing like going through a racial reflection, going through, through a reflection about your socioeconomic status, becoming more familiar with how those inequities play out in your life is really, really important. The third one is uh, I want folks to kind of think about the Avengers, hear the music of the Avengers in the background. We want you to assemble a team for equity. Uh, but we want you to lead from the top of the circle. I mean, I, I always say in this work, assembling a team for equity is important, but leading differently is also important. Leaders must remember that. Fourth is to recognize that equity work is change work on steroids. So get ready. It is change work. It's very important change work. And you have to have in mind what you're going to do and how you're going to approach that in ways that support the development of people and yourself as a process. And just going back to that assembling a team, it's important that leaders recognize that they're not trying to do this work alone. I mean, they, you'll just be worn out so very quickly uh, without that. Equity definitely is not for the faint of heart. And so don't go it alone. It's, it's just, it's really not worth it. Sustaining equity requires you to collaborate with others and work on it every day. That's the fifth step. We want you to create systems where equity is something that you do and you work on every day and all the ways that you can think of and trying to distribute all the skills around this work and the raise the interest and the excitement about how we're going to show up for kids to do really important work to push against things that have been around uh, so for, for so very long. So it has to be created and done in ways that are sustainable. I'm not going to assume you always get pushback, but I'm guessing that you probably do. What kind of pushback do you get when you're talking with teachers or administrators or whomever could be members of the public? Uh, I know, depending on the mm -hmm. situation, how do you respond to the types of pushback that you have run into? Yes. So, yes, we we do get pushback. And uh, as you might imagine, it comes in a variety of forms. Some of the common ways, common things we hear is we deal with this concept of, of white privilege. You can't really address these issues if you don't deal with white privilege and you can't really talk about white privilege if we don't talk about our fascination with whiteness in this country and white and, and which comes from a, a, a this notion that white is superior, and much people may say white supremacy. You know, so, oh my God, they, people hear that, and all of a sudden they get this view that we're talking about people running around uh, with hoods on, as, as like the KKK. And so folks are automatically that's not me. And so to talk about equity is set up in this conflictual space because of people get that as one view of it, uh, which once again. Not necessarily incorrect and different from the history of this country, but it's it's incomplete. What what I've said is there are levels of inequity that I focus on in sessions that I present, 
And the thing that's not socially acceptable is the KKK approach. I'm sorry, that's, that's socially unacceptable. But what is socially acceptable is an approach to historical, structural, and institutional inequities. And these are the things that we do not see. So to try to have a conversation with folks means that they're thinking you're calling me somebody who's bad or associated with that kind of person, and that's not me. And so we can't really have that conversation. That's one issue that I think folks really have to really get over. A second issue is when you say things like being privileged, there's pushback. People just say, I wasn't privileged, for instance, I grew up poor. Okay, we've said that there are tensions in the work and there are things that both can be true. You could have grown up, grown up poor and still promote a system of inequity. It is also true that, or maybe true, that just because you're privileged, it does not mean that you did not work hard. That's not what we're saying. So I think as a field that that's how it's been presented. And as I present thoughts throughout the book and in workshops, that's exactly what I'm saying in my work that yes, you can be privileged, but you can also still promote these systems. And we have to remember that we're socialized to believe that the person who brings up racial inequity or any kind of inequity is the person who is rude and sensitive. And that person may even be the racist themselves that they're trying to push back against. And I believe, so why do we have that as a country? Because if you look at it, we're not accustomed to having conversations about inequities, particularly racial inequity uh, in, in multiracial spaces. It's kind of become that thing that we know is there. As you were saying earlier, educators know equity is there, but it's the thing that educators are also taught. We can't talk about that or we can't say that because if we do, we may say something, something may spill out of our mouth and then we might be, once again, going back to, we're like that person and that bad person in the hood, which we have all said in society, no, that's not socially acceptable. And so our many fears of engaging around that and having that privilege is really an issue. And, and to be frank, a lot of my uh, white students over the years have, have come to terms with their privilege around uh, inequities and have been less reluctant to talk about racial inequities, which is a major starting point for us and uh, for, for the book. But they have admitted to using their privilege to either shut down the conversation or just not participate and be very, very quiet, even though they may have been engaged on in other aspects of the conversation. So it's very important that in the book, there's a push to interrogate those multiple levels uh, of inequities, starting with the self, the personal narrative and moving the conversation forward. But we just have to make space uh, to deal with all those issues. And there are a lot of pieces in there if there's a follow-up question, I totally understand, but uh, hopefully that is all making sense as I as I get it out there. And it's, again, it's condensed version. Uh, what I was wondering is if you could use an example maybe of, of something you've done or situation when you've been talking about implicit bias or white privilege, when you're working with a faculty, kind of just an example of one of the things uh, that maybe you've done that's been helpful when you're working you know, with a group, especially a uh, a diverse group, uh, a diverse faculty uh, altogether. There are so many different dynamics that I'm sure are going on. Uh, well, I know I've, I've been a part of that, that I know are going on uh, within a group, within a faculty when you're when you're starting uh, these discussions. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
So I have a great example that took place about 14 years ago. So I would engage leaders in these exercises around uh, racial reflections. As a part of that, I would ask leaders to uh, define race because it was very important for me to get an understanding of their, their personal definition of race before we move into another part of it. And so every time I work with, work with adult learners, back then I knew this and I've learned this even more over the years, you have to have a set of agreements. And in in, in, in we talk about the agreements in the book on page, I talk about those on page 175. And the agreements are important because Adult learners have to have ways of interacting with each other to maximize their learning, but also know that this is going to be a level of respect in dealing with some really difficult content. So there was a gentleman, a white gentleman, uh, who we started to talk about race. And uh, the question was to define race. And he fully knew what the session was about. He decided the way that he would define race and to be kind of cute to keep him out of the conversation was he would write down like 10K Indy 500. So he wrote all these things about, you know, different kinds of race. Knowing very well, that's not what we were talking about. But he also had an intention to sort of suck the air out of the room. And and there were people in the room, some folks across the room, group of teachers who were particularly vocal. And they wanted to like go at that. They, they knew him personally. They wanted to go at No, you can't do that. And I said, you know, we're, we're in a developmental process. We're going to keep it moving. And I didn't berate him. And I think that was the expectation. I think he wanted me to really say something and that, that could show that I was the person who was going to embarrass white people. And I've been doing this long enough that I'm like, no, that's not what. And we circle back to, we talk and I explained gently, no, that's not what we, what we were really thinking about. And the, te the teachers were really angry. They were like, aren't you going to do something to him? Because he, I said, we're, we're going to move on. And remember, I pointed to the agreements, you know, one of which is we don't freeze people in time. Perhaps that's what he believes and he's the, I don't think that's what, it, but I can't say because right. we're developmentally moving the conversation forward. Anything else would have taken the air out of the room and had that whole session derailed because it would have been now more about him versus the learning about everybody else who's in the room. And we still came back to it. And I I, I explained to the, those because they had something to say to me. I said, you, you're free to talk to your colleagues one-on-one -on -one about what they write and what they're thinking and and you should, and I encourage you to do that. But I would still say to you, have some uh, guidelines for that conversation and really be, really try to prioritize equity, going back to the groups first. Prioritize that person's learning. Assume good intentions. It might not be there, but at least a colleague is trying to walk them into a place. Because I've seen it happen in other ways. It's a, it's a, it's what they think is a sophisticated way of avoiding the conversations around this top difficult topic. And we have so many ways of doing that that we sometimes don't even realize it. <laughs> you know, uh, so that's just that's just one way. Uh, there are others uh, because many of them are unconscious. Many of them are unconscious, and they're tied to the history of this country around what we believe about people who we perceive to be, and I'm using air quotes, different from us. Sure, it is insidious the way that the the different ways culturally that that all of these structures. Have, have fit together and for people sometimes to realize how many different ways and how many different things that that have happened that that are not noticed always hard to uh, to deal with and and to work through um even with the best intentions 
Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about leadership teams. First off, you mentioned a leader is not going to be effective when they try to be the superhero. Why is that? Right. Or, or, well, or what is that fallacy? <laughs> okay. Yes, of course. A longer answer to this is in leadership, there's there's this belief and sometimes in the broader literature, we we can't get away from that heroic leadership notion, that one person who sort of comes through the doors, pushes the doors open, saves everybody and, and says, you know, it's all on me and I'm going to take care of everyone. And while there are some parts in leadership where I think that can be useful, in cases like this, it becomes increasingly difficult because to to engage in things like uh, racial reflection require the leader up front to share their racial reflection. So if they're doing a racial autobiography, the leader's required to share that with people who say, well, why would you want to do that? Isn't that like opening up your, your, your closets at home and letting everybody look in? Yes, it is. But by doing that, the leader is showing strength and vulnerability. And the leader is modeling what I would like for you to do in support of building community. Because ultimately, these issues are so complex. They're so deeply entrenched. And they're difficult, as you've heard earlier, and they're heavy lifts. So for a leader to not check in and build a team of folks to check in with, it's going to make it even much more, much more difficult. You find that becoming an equity-focused leader actually intersects with good leadership. I've seen that over the many years. Equity focus has components in it that really are going to make the organization stronger. We emphasize in the book relationships. I found over time relationships building is very important. Relationship building becomes increasingly more important when you're talking about equity-focused leadership because recall that I said folks are going to be reluctant to talk about this. They're going to feel uncomfortable and they're going to feel conflictual even when they don't recognize it. So having a relationship ahead of time is really going to support and facilitate engaging in really deep discussion around how we can move forward. And we are going to make mistakes. So the heroic leader model tends to paint the picture of a person who is, uh, if not perfect, leaning toward perfect in leadership and who knows all in some ways. But we need folks to to say, I don't even have the answer to that one. And there's some outside pressure that is going to require us to be ethical in how we do this. But I don't have you know, quite the answer right now, but I'm being honest. Because I don't have the answer, it doesn't mean I should just walk away from this. It means that I need your help. I need your your many perspectives. And it also means that we can share the experiences of people who are much closer to some of these challenges and who are working through them, especially if the leader happens to be white. And you know, the majority of our leaders in this country still are, are white and white men particularly, but, but definitely while it is changing, the majority of principles are still white. My first position as a, uh, as a principal, having to understand we're in a profession that is primarily female men were ov- well overrepresented in the, in the leadership. And so I just want to mention in the book, you talk not strictly about racial background. Uh, you also talk about disability, 
socioeconomic status, language, uh, gender and sexual identity and religion is part of that as well. Yes. How do those, those other identities interplay? Absolutely. And, and I should, I should correct the point. I believe we are now in terms of leaders, I think we have a majority of women. We have yes. majority, majority of well, white women. I think, you know, so, so they, they've eclipsed men in that sense, but we have a, disproportionate representation speaking right. about that in terms of gender because because of dynamics around how we how we really select folks for leadership positions we still have the majority of positions that women have in principalships as you know or in elementary schools right mm-hmm. so again why is that the case we should be curious about that because it doesn't mean that women are not aspiring to that i mean there are some women who say no i don't want to do the secondary principalship uh maybe i have some family obligations or maybe there's something else going on but 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 there are women who aspire to that who have a harder time breaking into 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 those those positions so to your question yes we talk about different aspects of identity and as you have seen every we have a section on each one and we want leaders to understand that we all have spaces where we don't see around corners when it comes to these different kinds, uh, different types of identities. For example, when we think about religion, we know in this country, and there's a lot to back this up, that we tend to move toward Christianity. We don't have a national religion. We We honestly have separation of church and state. But we tend to push out these monotheistic ideas, right? We still say the pledge, and we know the pledge says one nation under God. And say, oh, well, if you are an atheist, you can just not do it. But then there are are pockets when people don't do it. (laughs) I know (laughs) I've seen a couple of cases in Texas when they say, well, if there's people don't know, okay, if people don't do the pledge, this was some years ago, uh, then just send their names down to the office to the principal. Like, why? (laughs) Right? Because... We, we have that tendency that there's something different about people who are not exercising religion in the same way. And so it's that lens that we have. Or even students who come to us and they practice Islam and they say, can you create a space for me to pray? And so educators feel like, oh, my God, what, 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 what do we do? And so if we are going to say that students have First Amendment rights in school and to exercise their religion, and they, and they do, then how do we perceive that? What are those biases in our mind that causes us not to see it or to have blind spots when it comes to somebody's uh, religious equity? And so what we do is we we find that if we don't examine that, if we don't ask those kinds of questions of ourselves, we promote religious inequity every single day without even thinking about it. We also find that there are some pretty troubling comments that happen in school districts as well and educators who are not aware of this enough don't address them. For instance, it was not too long ago that I worked with a school district where some of the uh, South Asian students were being being called terrorists, right? Being mm-hmm. saying that you, you know you're you're probably going to you know blow up the school. And teachers and leaders heard that, and they just simply say, "Oh, you you, you shouldn't say that." It, but that goes deeper. You you got to really address what is it? What is what is our culture? Are we building a welcoming community for folks who? And again, they, these were South Asian students. So so kind of even have, as things line up, like what what are people saying? And and so how will those students feel 
to be in a space when you're allowing, um, it wasn't all white students who were saying this, but it was predominantly white students who were making a joke. And then when the students made a statement about that, said, no, look, you shouldn't say that. That's not, you shouldn't say that to me. And th there was always a refrain from some of these students. These students were, oh, that's just a joke. You're just, you're being too sensitive. I said, no, this is where we start planting the seeds of hate crimes. Mm -hmm. If we don't, if we allow those things to happen in school, where it's supposed to be, this multicultural space where we're learning together and how to be more democratic citizens. If we don't address that, then we have some issues. We have some inequities that are being allowed to go on that we are calling harmless. Yeah. One of the things that I think goes along with this is we need to explicitly teach students to be kind. And it sounds like that is a part of uh, being equity focused as well, even though that we, we would consider that more social emotional learning uh, as opposed to equity. But I think they go along but very tightly and very close together. Yes, I, I agree. I'm actually working on a project with the, with the principal now who was doing some work in, uh, in her school in, in, in Harlem around social emotional learning. One of the things she recognized as a um, deficiency in some of the social emotional learning work, it didn't have a bridge to addressing these kinds of issues that we're talking about. And I think that if it does not have a bridge to these conversations, if it doesn't have a bridge to racial inequity, for instance, then be being kind becomes this thing by itself. And in that situation, Folks won't attach to being kind or won't make the jump as you as you just have, Scott. They'll just be that that's something different. And and so the the uh, principal and I, uh, uh, she, she was a former principal, I should be clear. She's actually a superintendent now. But we are really looking at an approach that reminds folks through uh, my work around cultural responsive school leadership, being attached to a social and emotional learning framework to say, as we bring those together, People who are going to be doing social and emotional learning have to have gone through some of these steps. Otherwise, they're just going to have a social and emotional learning framework, and I've seen it, that doesn't go a level deeper or helps us understand that this is absolutely the most important work when it comes to being kind, because it was not just happenstance for me to make that jump to if we allow certain kinds of unkind language, right, to yes. remain in schools it implicitly teaches kids that certain folks deserve kindness and certain folks don't. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Because people think, Oh, teaching kids to be kind is easy. Right. <laughs> and, and the example that, that you gave about South Asian students being uh, called terrorists, that really needs a lot of restorative work. There's a lot of work that's going to go into teaching the students who did this thing, who were calling this other group of students terrorists because of the, and doing it just because of the way they look, right. teaching that kindness uh, and teaching why that is, is, is a, is a restorative process that, that is, that is hard work. Absolutely. Yeah. Please tune in to episode nine of the 2023 season to hear the rest of my conversation with Dr. Mark Gooden.
The Thoughtful Teacher Podcast is brought to you as a service of OnCourse Education Solutions. If you would like to learn more about how we help schools and youth organizations strengthen learning cultures and implement restorative interventions, please visit our website, www.oncoursesolutions.net. This has been Episode 8 of the 2023 season. If you enjoy this podcast, please tell your friends and colleagues about it in person or using social media. We also greatly appreciate positive reviews on the podcast app you use. The Thoughtful Teacher Podcast is hosted and produced by R. Scott Lee and is a copyright of OnCourse Education Solutions, LLC. We encourage diverse opinions. However, opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of producer, partners, or underwriters. Guest was not compensated for appearance, nor did the guest pay to appear. Episode notes, links, and transcripts are available at our website, thoughtfulteacherpodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive notices when new episodes are released. Theme music is composed and performed by Audio Coffee. Please follow me on social media. My handle on Twitter and Instagram is at Dr. R. Scott Lee, and on Mastodon, at Dr. R. Scott Lee, at universedon.com. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.